from Hollywood, I'm Martin Grove, welcoming you to our Screen Dollars podcast, Box Office Autopsy. In today's conversation, we'll look at the marketplace and analyze how things are going and where they're going. Joining me on the line now is Screen Dollars box office guru, Dick Walsh. Between Dick's career in exhibition, including as film chairman of AMC Entertainment, and my own days talking about movies on CNN, Entertainment Tonight, and as a Hollywood Reporter columnist, we've logged nearly a hundred years in Hollywood. That doesn't mean we're always right, but we've definitely got a few opinions to share. This was not a big dramatic weekend, but it certainly brought a lot of good news for exhibitors. I think the turtles held up better than expected. Yes, absolutely. Uh, on Friday, it dropped 75%, had people concerned, but then on Saturday and Sunday, held in at 50%. 50% in these times is a great hold. So uh, very encouraged on Eternals uh, growth for the weekend as well as its percentage drop. Yeah, well, now that percentage drop you referred to was 61%, and it gave it a gross of $27.5 million. Now, people have been saying, and I mean by people, media people, the, the uh, doomsayers, as I call them, were saying last week, hey, it could drop 70%. Look at those lousy reviews on Rotten Tomatoes, 46% rotten from the critics. Uh, they don't mention that the audience score is 80% positive. But if it had dropped 70%, you would have seen a gross of around $21 million, but uh, instead you've got a 61% fall and a very attractive $27.5 million. So uh, Eternals, I think, is showing that Marvel films are review-proof, and uh, Marvel films res- re- reflect the the uh, input, the spirit, the dynamic capabilities of that studio led by Kevin Feige, its president, we have him here to listen to talking on the red carpet at the world premiere in Hollywood at Disney's El Capitan Theater. He talked about how hard it was and how long it took to bring Eternals to the screen. Well, it's been many years, and like so many of our releases this year, Eternals was uh, was delayed. But uh, as I've been saying, uh, good things come to those who wait. And this one really, we've had a number of Phase 4 projects come out this year. This really represents what we were working towards as we were finishing up Endgame. Chloe came in and pitched this story to us as we were doing the final touches on Endgame. And I was doing soul-searching about the future of the MCU and where we take it. And Nate Moore, our producer on this movie, really had a belief in Jack Kirby's vision of Eternals in bringing it to the screen in a new way, in a unique way. We always wanted to do a movie that spanned millennia and focused on a character of immortals that have lived amongst us. And Eternals seemed like the greatest way to do that. And it was when Nate brought in Chloe that we really decided we have to make this movie, and I couldn't be more excited as I always am here staying on a carpet uh, for the world uh, to uh, see it. 
That's Kevin Feige, the president of Marvel Studios, talking about the road to the screen for Eternals. By the way, Dick, internationally, this picture is also performing very well. Over this weekend, it did $48 million in 49 territories. The cube now is over $281 million worldwide. And, and we've talked about this before, but I want to ask you again, that's a picture that runs over two and a half hours. Yeah, and uh, again, uh, we've lost the show time per day. Uh, that could be 10 to 15% of the gross is lost just due to run time. But the way it held in this weekend and uh, the fact that uh, the holiday coming up for Thanksgiving, some of the pictures aren't perhaps as good as we would have hoped. Uh, Eternals is going to hang in there. And I think Eternals may surprise people when all the votes are finally counted. The Eternals, in other words, could have a long life at the box office. Yes, absolutely. Uh, at least into early December, no doubt about it. Well, certainly they'll be happy to hear us say that over at uh, Disney and Marvel. Now, in second place, and, and not so far down, by the way, was an overperforming Clifford the Big Red Dog from Paramount and Scholastic Entertainment. It's, of course, animated family comedy, and it opened to $16.4 million for three days, but $22 million for five days because it got the jump on the holiday weekend because of Veterans Day uh, by opening on Wednesday. So $22 million. Now, this is a picture that for five days the Hollywood handicappers were saying, well, if it's lucky, it'll do 15 to $17 million. Once again, we have this picture, and it's overperforming. Yeah, it's about 30% higher than people thought it was going to do, and so... So nice to see a family picture at PG come in and actually do uh, an outperforming job on the box office. We've been disappointed, uh, it seems like, since early summer, any time a family animated film comes into the marketplace. Well, you know, uh, that is such a central point of importance to exhibitions, uh, you know, survival, growth, recovery, whatever you want to call it. Uh, the media's message has been family movies are on thin ice. Why? Because parents wouldn't dare risk, and I put that risk in quotes, taking kids to cinemas. Well, it doesn't make sense, and it makes even less sense when you read the media reports about how theme park revenues are soaring. Well, thanks to the same parents taking the same kids out to have a little fun. So, what do they think is such a greater risk about going to the movies for kids? I don't think there is such a thing. It seems like as each week goes by, the COVID factor seems to be less and less. And now we're just down to the quality of the pictures and uh, the time of year uh, they're being shown. Yeah, and I, I have read just this past week that we already have had about a million young kids uh, vaccinated against COVID. Uh, certainly uh, nobody's going to think twice now about bringing them to see a movie or, or go anywhere because they're, they're protected now that they can be. So I think what really w uh, held this picture down from even doing more wasn't uh, families worrying about going to the movies, but families who decided they could see it for nothing at home on Paramount Plus. I say nothing beyond their monthly subscription fee. Uh, that's not a good thing, is it? 
No, and it did $22 million for five days. Not unreasonable to think it would have done 30 to $35 million had it not been on Paramount+. Plus. Yeah, and, and you know, it's a cute picture. We've got a film clip to listen to here. Uh, this is called Clifford Goes to the Vet. And it turns out, and you'll hear this, he's so heavy and he's 10 feet tall, he breaks the vet's scale. So let's give a listen. Is he all right? Yeah, I'm, well, he's a... Whew. Are you going to examine him? Yes, I am, because I'm, I'm a veterinarian. That's what I do. I, I examine animals. Mm. Mom, take a look inside your mouth there, buddy. Oh, easy. You want to maybe tell him? Oh, yeah. Clifford. Good boy. Good job there, buddy. All right, let me take a look there. Cool. Cool, 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 cool. Yeah. That's the large teeth on the big red dog. Yeah, so why don't we get you on the scale here, bud? What's slowly? It's just a platinum edition of the X9000. Yeah, sorry about that. No problem. I'm just going to write heavy. From Clifford the Big Red Dog, Clifford's experience with the vet, and the vet probably uh, had to replace that scale uh, <laughs> very quickly. Now, uh, let's go from the uh, fun animated Clifford to the weekend's other opening, uh, which is a much more serious film, a coming-of-age drama from Focus Features, and that's called Belfast. It's directed by Kenneth Branagh, uh, who directed the uh, Marvel uh, hit Thor, in 2011, and by the way, in Belfast, there is a scene where uh, the the young uh, Jude Hill, uh, around whom the film revolves, is reading a comic book, and, and would you want to guess which comic book it is? Well, it's Thor, and uh, a very inside reference, and uh, we have from, uh, from Belfast a film clip, not that one, but, but a much lighter one. Uh, uh, this is Jamie Dornan, who stars as the, the youngster's father in the film, and who, by the way, was actually born in Belfast, as was Kenneth Branagh. And in, in this scene, Jamie Dornan is lip-singing the uh, pop song Everlasting Love uh, at a wake. Let's listen to that. Dornan from Belfast singing, or at least lip-singing, Everlasting Love. Uh, uh, Dick, this is a picture that, uh, I mean, that, that has just opened, uh, you know, very decently, and again, ahead of projections. It's number eight for the weekend, did a million eight at only 580 theaters. Uh, the uh, uh, Hollywood handicappers were saying, with luck, it'll do a million dollars, so they were wrong yet again. What do you think's going on there? Well, uh, I think there's very few uh, older adult type of pictures out in the marketplace right now, 
and Belfast is taking advantage of that. And, of course, it's going to expand to well over a 1,000 screens in the next couple of weeks. And the critics just love this thing. Some have it already engraved for Best Picture. Well, you know, uh, the critic score on Rotten Tomatoes is 88%. The audience score is 90%. So here's a case where everybody agrees it's a good film. And, of course, it has the uh, awards uh, uh, credentials already. It's very early in the awards season. But this is the picture that won at the Toronto Film Festival the one award that's given there, which is the People's Choice Award. And that's an important award pointing to the uh, Oscar conversation. And you can count on this picture to get into uh, the, the Oscar race and all the other uh, major award races. And yes, it's an adult appeal film. But, but let me bounce this off you, Dick. Uh, no Time to Die, the Bond film, just hit $150.5 million domestically. It's the sixth biggest film this year, and that's an adult film. Uh, I'll grant you that it's got a lot broader appeal. It's Bond, uh, of course, but it does show, I think, that adults will come out to the box office to see something they want to see. Yeah, absolutely, and it does come down to, I think Shakespeare said it, the play is the thing. And uh, I, it does come down to the quality of, of what's going on the screen. And certainly uh, we're finding that uh, consumers are much more discernible uh, about what they are going to put their hard-earned money down for in a movie theater as well as what they're going to pay for on a streaming channel. Well, talking about what they're going to pay for uh, brings us to, uh, to next week. Uh, next week... We've got uh, two films opening, uh, uh, each of which is uh, getting in position for Thanksgiving and hoping that they're going to do a lot of business. And uh, as, as you referenced before, uh, I mean, who, who knows? We'll, we'll soon see. But, but the first of these uh, has uh, great historic roots, and that is from Sony Braun and the Montecito Picture Company, uh, Ghostbusters Afterlife. Uh, major uh, film. It's directed by uh, Jason Reitman, who did, of course, Up in the Air, and his father, Ivan Reitman, uh, directed the original Ghostbusters in 1984, and he's the producer of Ghostbusters Afterlife now. Uh, this picture uh, certainly is a, is a brand name. Uh, that's likely to help it, I would think. Oh, yeah, absolutely. It's got a track record. People know what they're buying. Uh, there's nothing wrong with this picture except it's going to do about $120 million at a time frame where two years ago Frozen 2 did $477 million. <laughs> yes. So it's, it's, it's going up against very tough comps, and this Thanksgiving just doesn't look like it, the lineup uh, we had two years ago. Well, you know, look, times have changed. Uh, we, we aren't out of the pandemic yet. Uh, I mean, all the stories I've been seeing this week suggest that it's starting to ramp up again in parts of the country as the weather gets colder, people spend more time indoors where, where it's uh, said to be easier to become infected and, and, uh, and so on. But uh, I, again, I think that uh, movie going is going to be on the increase, and especially with so many people now vaccinated, uh, uh, they will go to the movies as they have been. Well, the only way to get to a $70 million opening is to have about uh, 
uh, seven million people paying roughly ten bucks a piece to get there. So, so that's a lot of people. But hopefully, we will see more growth. And also, Thanksgiving is a time when I think uh, people like to go to the movies. They can go as a family unit if there's something playing that will uh, please everybody of all ages in the family, and usually there is. Uh, and, uh, you know, it just kind of goes with the uh, Thanksgiving weekend. One other thing, Dick, about uh, Ghostbusters Afterlife in its favor is that uh, this picture is not streaming day and date. Right, and so uh, all the gross will come at the box office, and, uh, you know, it, it looks like with the track record the picture has, it's a, certainly going to appeal to a broad audience, and you're absolutely right about Thanksgiving. That Thanksgiving, Friday through Thursday, actual Thanksgiving Day, is in many years the biggest week of the year, and so that's how lucrative this uh, time of year can be. Well, and in the tracking uh, for Ghostbusters Afterlife right now, the uh, first choice, the biggest group, is under 25 men. They're 10 points above norm uh, as we speak, and that will probably go up more, I think. Uh, and that's an audience, those under 25 males, that does a lot of movie going. So that's certainly another positive, I think. Well, yeah, if it's tracking well with younger people, remember, this is based on a 1984 original. So uh, it's got a built-in audience from 1984 and beyond, and young kids are picking up. Well, and, and worth pointing out that coming back from the original movie are Bill Murray, Sigourney Weaver, Dan Aykroyd, and Ernie Hudson. So uh, if you were around and saw it in 84... If you caught up with it uh, sometime thereafter uh, and liked it, and uh, it was a very likable film, I remember enjoying it immediately on seeing it then, uh, you, you probably want to see this one. I mean, why not? Uh, so, so look, but of course it doesn't have uh, an open track. It's got competition, and I don't know how strong that competition is, but it's got it from Warner Brothers, and that is with the uh, sports biodrama King Richard. Now, that's going into around 3,300 theaters. Ghostbusters Afterlife will be playing wider or somewhere around 4,000 theaters. King Richard is about the tennis superstars Venus and Serena Williams, and how they rose to fame, and they were coached uh, to do so uh, so well uh, by their father, Richard, and uh, he's played by Will Smith, who's also a producer of the film. Now, uh, let me ask you, is this picture going to be uh, streaming day and date? Yes, uh, it will be. It'll be on HBO Max. And again, this is the Wonder Brothers decision they made very early on in the year. And they're going to continue through this. Of course, we just came out of Dune uh, that is, is streaming. And you wonder, uh, with such a lucrative playtime, what if they had switched King Richard into early October and moved Dune right here? What would Dune have done over the Thanksgiving holiday period? Well, even though we, we of course, don't know, uh, I'm with you. I think that would have been a brilliant move. Uh, Dune is an event film. Dune has great presence. It's uh, just, just a major kind of 
picture uh, to draw people, and, uh, and it belongs on the big screen. And with Dune, even though it was streaming as well on HBO Max, it's not the kind of picture you want to see on the small screen. On the other hand, a smaller sports biodrama like King Richard uh, uh, you could see that on a smaller screen and uh, and be just as happy and enjoy it uh, probably just as much. Uh, when I looked at the tracking just before we started uh, talking, Dick, the tracking right now, average first choice, is equal to the norm, and there is no demo that pops out with stronger scores. As you know, typically there's one demo that shows, you know, a, a greater interest, more uh, uh, more likely to turn out to see it. Right now, uh, all the demos are, are equally cool, and I would say that that doesn't augur too well for it. No, another concern is the fact that uh, Warner Brothers has decided not to go with Thursday advanced screenings uh, of the picture. They're going to open it on Friday flat out at like uh, 10 o'clock in the morning and show it all day on Friday, but of course, we've been used to having Thursday night advanced screenings. The fact that they decided not to do it uh, potentially means they were afraid it wasn't going to gross well and it would have gotten off to a very bad start. So um, you never know. Uh, I'm sure the film is a quality film. I used to say never bet against Will Smith, and I'm certainly going to go see this picture. Uh, But is it the right picture at the right time of year? We are going to find out if it is, and we're going to report on that here right back again next week on Box Office Autopsy. We will check out how the newcomers checked in and tell you uh, whatever it is. And then we also will look at what's actually opening Thanksgiving weekend. Until then, thank you for listening. Time now for our film flashback look at what was happening in Hollywood right around now, way back then. Let's set today's time travel dial for... November 14th, 1976. When MGM's network premiered in New York November 14th, 1976, its portrait of network television news was seen as a cartoonish satire. But 45 years later, it looks entirely too real. Director Sidney Lumet and screenwriter Patty Chayefsky exposed TV's willingness to do anything to boost ratings and revenues. Chayefsky's story centers on Howard Beale, news anchor for the fictional UBS TV. Peter Finch played Beale, whose ratings are sagging until he announces on air he's going to kill himself on the show next week. When his audience share soars, programming chief Diana Christensen, Faye Dunaway, creates an angry show about radical extremists with Beale as the mad prophet of the airwaves. Cooler heads like news president Max Schumacher, William Holden, don't prevail, 
and Beale's on-air madness continues until he unexpectedly changes gears, losing his audience and his value to UBS. No spoilers here. Beale tells his millions of viewers to open their windows and scream into the night, I'm as mad as hell and I'm not going to take this anymore! It brings to mind contemporary TV news personalities for whom audience manipulation is now a nightly routine. Beale's line became one of the best-known movie lines ever. Ironically, it wasn't delivered exactly as written, because Finch added the word as between I'm and mad, but there was no footage available to edit it. Even more ironically, Chayefsky's deal guaranteed none of his lines would be changed in any way unless he approved. He also had the right to be on set daily and to physically be very close to the actors. To make such proximity work, cinematographer Owen Roisman created what was called Paddy's Light, illuminating a spot where he could stand without ruining a take. The networks disliked how network portrayed them and wouldn't make studio and control room facilities available for shooting in New York. It was too costly to build them, so those key scenes were filmed in Toronto at CFTO TV. Beale's intense mad-as-hell outburst was so physically demanding on Finch, who had a history of heart trouble, that he could only do three of the four two-and-a-half-minute takes Lumet wanted. Take three ended about halfway through, when Finch couldn't continue. Network brought Oscars to Chayefsky for original screenplay, Dunaway for lead actress, and Beatrice Strait for supporting actress as the wife Schumacher cheats on with Christensen. Finch died in January 1977, before winning the Best Actor Oscar posthumously. That's it for today's podcast. Thanks for listening. We'll be back with another box office autopsy next week. In Hollywood for Screen Dollars, I'm Martin Grove.